0: morning again. Somebody answered. There we go. like that. I like that. All right. Um, We are back in the Gospel of Mark, so we're working our way through that series, uh, starting in verse 13. And they, that's the crown, were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuke them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the last first. It's God's Word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, this is a challenging passage for a lot of different reasons. So let's pray as we open up. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning by your Word. We know that your Word isn't always easy to receive, but it is powerful. And it is effective to change us. So we pray that you would speak by your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, we live in kind of a confusing time for Christians, I think. Uh, For, well, probably a lot of different reasons. Uh, One of them is that the church is shrinking. Uh, Mainline churches have been dying out a slow death now for decades. Um, Evangelical churches... We're the biggest in, you know what year? 1993. You do the math. We've been shrinking since then. Uh, we've entered, you know, what a lot of people call a post-Christian moment in our culture. It's, it's one in which not only have, do people, have people maybe turned away from Christianity who had grown up in it, but in fact, we're post-Christian in the sense that, you know, increasingly people don't even grow up knowing it, not even knowing the story. It is, uh, it is part of a half-forgotten past in our culture. And, you know, that, that causes a lot of people in the church, certainly a lot of ministers, to bemoan what has been lost. But here's the thing there is an opportunity. There's a profound opportunity in that moment when people no longer even know who Jesus is or what he taught to go back to what is the essential question. How do you respond to Jesus? See, all the theological debates we have, and there have been many in church history, all the theological debates, all these other things are really offshoots of that central question. What does it mean to respond to Jesus? And what we see this morning in this passage is someone who receives Jesus and someone who resists Jesus. And then we see what it is to be recovered by Jesus. See, it starts in verse 13 with this with uh, with these families that have brought their children to Jesus. And uh, we've mentioned this a few times before, but in the ancient world, you know, they didn't really value children a lot. Now, they valued them in one sense for pragmatic reasons, because uh, children grow up and they can help with the work of the family. Uh, they, are, they are sort of the hope, as it were, for the future. Uh, but as children... Uh, They were not really sentimentalized. They were something of a necessary nuisance. And you would, of course, shoo kids away from important adults having important conversations, Um, which is clearly what the disciples are doing, right? Don't bother Jesus with the kids, he's got more important fish to fry. But that isn't Jesus' mentality, is it? He invites the kids. Jesus is glad that they're there. The kingdom of God belongs to them. And more than that, if you want to belong to it, you have to receive it like they do. You have to receive it. This is the language of a gift given. And that's who it belongs to, right? They didn't earn it. I mean, this is one of the things that's clear when we're we're talking about children, is we're talking about those who have not had a chance to earn anything. It is the absence of merit. They haven't done anything. I mean, you know, they haven't done anything to deserve to be in the kingdom of God. It is God's gift. And they belong because God is the one who has given it to them. It's a simple point, of course, but it's essential. It's worth st- stopping to ponder this, right? I mean, it's a thing received. The word for grace in the New Testament in Greek is charis, which means a gift. And we use the word grace, and that has a lot—usually a lot of theological uh, implications to it, which are all, you know good, but the heart of the word is just simply a gift. It's a thing God's given. It's huge. And the difference between a gift and a thing you achieve is huge. Now, I mean, it's fine to achieve things, right? To to be recognized, to be rewarded, to, you know, certainly your wages (laughs) when you're working, you want those. That's all fine, but the thing about what you achieve is it usually wears off. Doesn't last, and in fact, the people who achieve the most are often the people who are least satisfied with their achievements. This is what you know when you hear professional athletes talk about winning, right? I mean, what what is you know what what is left? But you know, they the next the next championship, but they want they can only keep going. But a gift is something different. Because a gift is something from someone who loves you. Or someone who's really important. Of course, in the case of God, it's both. A a gift matters because it is not something that you necessarily deserved. In fact, when we're talking about God, we're talking about those who don't deserve. This is why... This is why the handmade gift of a child is so special to a parent, right? Because it means they were thinking about me. I poured all this time in them, and they actually think about me. Um, It's great, right? Because they were thinking about you. You're not, you know, you're not judging it against the artwork in a gallery, in a museum. It is the person who gave it that matters. I have hanging in my office a, a Harvard pendant. I didn't go to Harvard, but I there for for a long time with my students because all my students signed it, or a bunch of them did when I was leaving, and they gave it to me as a gift. And I hang it there because it's a you know because it was a gift from them, and it has all these names right, and all behind all those names are all those stories of people I talked with and walked through challenges. Uh, I hang it there because. It's a gift. What does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? To receive the gift. It's worth stopping and think. What would that possibly mean? Some of it's got to be wonder. Uh, have you ever seen a, a, a young kid on Christmas morning? There might be a stack of gifts with their name on it. But they get the first gift and they open it up and if it's something you know it's like something they like it's like wow. And they completely forget about all the <laughs> things that are there, right? They're caught up in the wonder of this awesome thing they just got. Uh with with young kids Christmas morning takes forever. Of course as you get older it's like all right, let's tear them all apart, you know. And then I don't want to talk to anybody in the family for the rest of the day. Uh but that sense of wonder, right? of knowing this, of receiving this thing. And, you know, especially when it's from someone you love, right, you're thinking about that person and how they thought about you. When we're talking about the kingdom, then we're thinking about, you know, it's a sense of wonder at the king and a sense of wonder at his kingdom and what it all might mean. And, And it's awesome, too, when as kids really enjoy a gift, they get into it, right? They get really obsessed with it. Uh, Maybe the obsession isn't the right word. They contemplate. If you want a more grown-up word, they contemplate it, right? They think about every little angle on it. You know, if it's a toy, right? I mean, they figured out everything about it because they spend so much time playing with it. If it's if it's something that they're if they're really into the subject, right? They you know, it's characters that they want to know. They reread the book over and over and over. You know, I'm a little jealous sometimes of my kids how much they're able to kind of reread books. And I wish I could go back and have that kind of time. Of course, Dostoevsky takes a little longer than a board book, but I wish I could go back and reread more often than I do. That if it's a subject, right, they get really into the subject. They want to know more and more and more about it. Whether, again, whether it's the characters, whether it's the author, whether it's, the, whether it's knowing all the different types of trucks that are out there, they get really into the subject. Right? They, they want to contemplate deeply. They want to think about it all the time. And they do. They talk about it all the time. And that's what it means to receive a gift, like a child. And that's why Christian maturity has in it a sense of growing backwards. It's a little bit hard to explain, but, you know, Bob Dylan has a a song called My Back Pages, which uh, he's talking about how he was you know, he was motivated by all these different causes, but then the refrain that he comes back to is, I was so much older then, but I'm younger than that now. Meaning he's had to learn that he wasn't always for the righteous cause. He didn't always understand it. And I think that that describes something of what it's like to grow into maturity as a Christian. It, it doesn't mean that you forget all that you've learned or that you don't see clearly things that once were mysterious, but you do realize that you've only touched the surface. You've only skimmed it. You realize that there's so much more to learn. It's especially clear in how you deal with other people because you realize that there are possibilities that you can't see where you might have written them off you realize that nothing's impossible with God but of course the opposite of receiving is resisting and this is where uh, our rich young ruler comes into play uh so we we hear about this young man in in verse 17 that comes up to Jesus uh, by, the, you know, by verse 22, we realize that he's wealthy, he's got a lot of money. Uh, in the parallel account in Luke, he's called a ruler, which is a little generic, but it's, it does mean in some way that he is, uh, that he is in charge of, of things. He's a, he's a guy in authority, um, whatever that means, we don't know. But he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a funny choice of words, isn't it? Uh, Because he talks about inheriting, but then he talks about what he has to do to inherit it. Right? I mean, inheritance should be a, a gift, should be a thing passed on to you. But of course, in a dysfunctional family, wealthy family, you always have to earn the right to be in the inheritance. Actually, it's kind of weird. He's young and he's rich, so maybe his parents are already dead. We don't really know. I mean, that's a little bit of conjecture. You wonder what kind of dysfunctional family he came out of. But he asks a question that is not unusual. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and Jesus, of course, notes right at the beginning, he, you called me Good. But you know, no one is good except Jesus or except God. <laughs> well, that's true too. But the uh, but no one is good except God, right? He's put his he's put his finger on what is going to be. He's given him the the answers before the test, right? I mean, he's he's like you you know, you recognize, right, that nobody's good except God. But of course, he doesn't pick up on what Jesus is getting at, and when Jesus says, "You know the you know the rules." You know what you're supposed to do. You've memorized your Ten Commandments. You know the moral law. And he goes through. And this guy, of course, has the gall to answer, yeah, I've kept all of that. Check. Got it done. Uh, Now, there are times when Jesus takes an occasion like this and probes a little deeper. Oh, you honor your father and mother? Let's talk about the last conversation you have with them, right? I mean, you can think of the, the woman at the well in John 4, right, where Jesus tells her all the things she did wrong, right? And, uh, I mean, there's, so there's uncomfortable occasions like that. But on this occasion, Jesus takes a different approach, a curious one. He says, fine, you know, it's as if he's saying, fine, if you think you can keep the law. And since you asked me for something to do, I'll give you something to do. Go, sell it all, and follow me. That's not one of the Ten Commandments, to sell everything. But he, he is saying, become one of my disciples. If you miss that, the disciples, <laughs> the disciples are going to make sure Jesus knows in verse 28 that they did that, right? But he's telling them, Be, become like one of my disciples. And he can't do it or won't do it. And, the, and, the, and, what G, and Jesus' command to him has two two effects. I mean, theologically, Jesus is actually pointing out that he has broken the It becomes clear he has broken the commandments because Jesus talked about the, the commandments that have to do with how we treat each other, he left out the first four about how you deal with God. And this, of course, exposes that he has another God before God. So, I mean, at some theological level, it exposes that. At a practical level, of course, it puts before him a challenge that he can't meet, that he can't even convince himself <laughs> that he can meet. I can't do that. Wouldn't want to give up all that. And so Jesus continues on in the conversation as this man leaves dejected. He continues it with his disciples, right? And he says, how difficult it is for somebody rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like trying to get a camel, which is about the biggest animal most people would have seen ever (laughs) uh, in their life that he was talking to. Camels are huge. Have you ever seen a camel? They're really enormous. Um, try to get a camel through about the smallest opening they could possibly imagine. You know, the the, the top of the needle, the eye. <laughs> That's his image. It's about as impossible as he could, you know, you can imagine. It is easier to go through that. And you see the the problem here, and. Well, or what's really interesting about it is that as he, as he goes on, he says all that, and then the disciples say something curious. Who are not rich? They say, then who can be saved? I would think that they would be like, well, good not to be rich then, huh? You know? Like, if it's so bad when you're rich, like... You know, some consolation prize to those of us that are not rich. Right? That it won't be so hard. But you see, what they realize is they realize that this guy, like, they actually, they they seem to take, like Jesus, take for granted that maybe he really had kept the law. I mean, that probably can't be true, but, you know, that he's a guy that's struggling trying to do the right thing. And he, and here's what's more, he has the means to try to do it. He's not caught like they are in tough situations because, you know, you need the money and the different compromises that might come with that, right? So they take it in a very different way than I, than I take this statement. They take it as like if the guy who's got the means to, to really live his life the way he wants to live it can't do it, what about me? You see the difference? And it's getting at something really basic here. And, and the issue of wealth actually does help us understand this. See, the Bible does say a lot about money, but what's interesting is it says different things about money. On the one hand, it says to, be, to have wealth is a blessing from God. And it, it, no one can argue the point, right, that it's, it's better to have some money than not have any money. You know, we're, we're all from different cross-sections in terms of our, our, our wealth and our background, right? And we all kind of understand that. But it's fascinating that the New Testament in particular has a lot of hard things to say about when you do have money. Go to the beginning of James 5. If you want to hear a really harsh passage of Scripture, go to the beginning of James 5. This is how it starts. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is a New Testament apostle. Not some Old Testament prophet, right? He goes on, he talks about how you're being fattened like a calf for the day of slaughter. Well, Paul's a little less um, prophetic about it, but no less to the point. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, the issue of wealth is not that it is somehow morally better to not have money, but it is that wealth is a trap. It's not bad to have wealth, but it is a temptation. And the temptation is this, to think that you can relate to God transactionally. To think that you can pay God off. <laughs> now, I, now, of course, most people don't think they're going to pay God off with money. I suppose some people do. But uh, we know it's not that, but we think, look, if I can do enough... For God, He's gonna owe me. We might not use the word <laughs> "owe," are like, "I'm gonna make God owe me something." But this is what we think: if I, if I'm gonna, if I do good, then God gives me rewards. It's that simple. But it is the way. Of, it is a transactional way of thinking: that if I do good things, God will owe me. It is the delusion that I'm going to put God in the position of owing me. And here's the thing, it is the default operating system of all of us. It is the way we naturally think about God. And it has a 100% failure rate. (laughs) It has never once worked. You know, even, even at the beginning, before sin entered the picture, Adam was told to obey and there would be reward for it. But, that, but Adam had already been made. He had already been given a gift. So even the, the covenant of works, as we call it, is in the context of something more than a transactional relationship. After sin, we fall into this all the time. All the time, thinking, I can be good enough. Okay well, okay, well, maybe I'm not perfect, but if I clean my act up, maybe then God will accept me. If I get that aspect of my life straightened out, then maybe God will accept me. And the problem with that kind of transactional relationship is that it's soulless, it's loveless. But it is the way that we think about our, most of our relationships, unfortunately. And we wonder why we're so lonely. But it's especially bizarre when we think this about God. It is the great delusion. Because however we might couch, however piously we might couch that language... To think that we could somehow make God our debtor is a fool's errand. You know, the more we understand this then, the more we maybe can understand the way Jesus deals with different people. Because here's the thing. Jesus meets... uh, Tax collectors who, you know, no one liked then, no one likes now. <laughs> but, the, but those guys then, they were, they had to be a tax collector, you basically had to, had to partner with the Roman authorities. So you were a traitor. It had you, and, and Rome didn't pay you anything. You got to add to the tax to pay yourself, right? So you (laughs) were extorting your neighbors. This is why tax collectors were hated. Uh, Jesus deals with prostitutes and other people who have failed in this way. And this is the thing. Jesus is, by and large, very kind to them. Because they were not under the delusion that they were good people, that God owed something to. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who thought, I've got this figured out. I know what to do, and God will reward me. Well, they were in the greatest danger, weren't they? That's why Jesus dealt with them so bluntly. It was so hard, not because he doesn't, you know, not because, well, he thinks one group deserves salvation and another group doesn't. But he has to crack the transactional mentality of the Pharisees, the people that thought that they could be first. You notice how he ends this whole passage talking about the first and the last. We saw one of these sayings a few weeks ago, but Jesus comes to the, back to a version of this saying often, right? The first will be last and the last will be first. Because the only way you think, I'm going to be first in the kingdom, is if you are thinking transactionally. that <laughs> I've done enough. I've earned enough. I've, you know, I've stacked myself up against all my neighbors and I'm a good person. You see, the person who thinks they're last is the person that actually thinks they've been given a gift. I'm just glad to be here. (laughs) I can't believe I made it. (laughs) Right? I don't deserve to be here. I'm just glad to be at the party. I'm glad to be here for the good time. See, the person who thinks they're last is a person who knows they've received something from God person who thinks they're first thinks God owes them something. And so that question still lingers, though, right? Then who can be saved? And Jesus openly acknowledges that nobody's going to be good enough. If you approach God that way, you will never enter the kingdom of God. With man, it's impossible. But with God, anything's possible. Do you notice even how Jesus looks at this guy in verse 21? It's an important moment. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And then gave him this nearly impossible command that even when Jesus is trying to crack through the, the delusion of transactional, of transactional relationship with him, he does it in love. It is his love that animates the whole thing. And then even in verse 28, when Peter speaks up to remind Jesus that they did exactly what he was asking this guy to do, and Jesus is admittedly sometimes hard on Peter. Here he is gentle, gentle, Truly I say to you that anybody who gives up all these things is going to keep giving them with persecution, but will inherit eternal life. You see what he's saying to Peter, it is a good thing that you followed me. It is a good thing that you've received this, and you will receive eternal life. But not because he's earned it. But because he's realized that he's got nothing to to give. The opportunity of giving the way the disciples have given is not transactional, but rather to recognize they have nothing left to give. That the inheritance of the kingdom of God, the eternal life, is always, 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 always a gift. And it is, this is the thing, it is Jesus' gift. Jesus is the one who recovers us. Who takes us back. Who reclaims us. This phrase, eternal life is, you know, throughout the New Testament in different places. And it's often misunderstood. It's often think thought of in quantitative terms, right? That I'm just going to have that, you know, I'm just going to have more life. And when we think about the promises of what it's like in heaven, it's just going to be more stuff. But all the promises of heaven are about not about what we acquire, but they're about God and being with him in his presence. And so eternal life is not merely about is continuing, but it's about a quality of life that changes. It is knowing God, it is being received and loved by Him, being recovered by God's grace is what Jesus is talking about. Being recovered by Him. And that's what is so hard about the transactional mindset, right? about thinking that I can make God owe me something is because we don't want to receive the gift because we want to insist that we have to bring something to the table. But the more that we understand the gift is from Jesus and it is out of his loving heart, the more it decenters us, the more we realize this isn't about me. The kingdom of God is not about me and what I get. It is about what God has done. It's about what Jesus is doing in the world. It is about his world that he will bring about. So that, Jesus, so that God is not part of my story, but that I am caught up into his. And the gifts are profound, but they're always decentering. <laughs> I mean, think about, you know, think about the personal change God brings, right? And we classify this in different ways theologically, right? One of them is justification. That's the big word to just say that Jesus' life is exchanged for yours. So that he was judged in your place, but you are judged in his. And found righteous. Or think about sanctification, right? The, the, the work that God is doing in us to actually change us. It's still God's work, because the only way it works is by his Spirit. Or glorification, the resurrection. You could do anything about your resurrection? No. Or think about the church itself, right? I mean, the corporate gifts that God gives. This is not a thing we make. It's an absurd, it is an absurd idea. To think that we could have people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Cross class, cross different life experience. And make it work. I mean, no wonder it's such a a mess. But it's God's gift. It's God's work. And no wonder it's persisted then. For thousands of years, through the rise and fall of empires, countries come and countries go. But his church stands. Despite its flaws. Despite its failures. Because he's the one at work but here's the deal. There is a thing that is the gift. It, all those other gifts are really, maybe you might, you know, maybe it's too flippant, but are like the wrapping around the gift. Because the gift is God himself. Do you want to receive the kingdom? You have to receive Jesus. And he gives himself freely freely. To anyone who would receive him. That's why he came. To give his life for you. And when he takes his life back up, what what does he give but the spirit? So the spirit is at work in anyone who trusts in Jesus to change them from the inside out. It's not a quick fix because you aren't a quick fix. I'm not a quick fix. It's the long-term work of God in our heart. And what does that change do but bring us into the presence of the Father? That is our hope. That we be with him and enjoy that kind of love, that love that is not an inheritance that we earn, but a kingdom that we belong to because it was given to us. Maybe a lot of that's kind of mystical. But the results are clear. The more that we understand that the kingdom is really God's gift, in fact, the gift itself is God himself, then we are freed up. We are freed from thinking transactionally. I have to obey so that God will owe me. Instead, we are free... To obey because we love him. To receive what he's given without the pretense of having to prove that we deserved it. Which means we can sacrifice and not, you know, look. Most of us are probably not going to be called to give as much as Jesus tells this guy. But we were able to give as much as we're called to. Without fear. Because we're confident in the gift itself. And it also leaves open the possibilities. It leaves open possibilities for you. And those things that you think you will never break, nothing is impossible with God. In those others that you think are impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. That ought to lead us then, you know, more deeply into prayer, shouldn't it? More deeply into reliance on Him. Because nothing's too wonderful for Him. Nothing is outside His reach. And He will not disappoint. Because from start to finish, the gift of Jesus is himself. And he doesn't disappoint. Father, we thank you that we have the gift of being your children. That we have it because Jesus gave himself. And in giving himself, he also sent the Spirit. And in ascending the Spirit, we know that he will bring us home to you. And into your presence. So that we can be less obsessed with our performance and be more excited and enjoying the gift that you've given us. And we might live by grace with confidence in you. Give us excitement about the possibilities, possibilities of change in our own lives. And in those that we know, our neighbors, our friends, our family, because nothing is too wonderful for you. I ask all us in Christ's name, Amen.